uh, panel. My name is John Ralston. I, I am the editor of the Nevada Independent, which is kind of a uh, mini Texas Tribune that we've started up about eight months ago uh, in Nevada. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to welcome all of you uh, on behalf of the, of, of the Trib to the seventh annual Tribune Festival and our panel, which as you may or may not know is called Country Over Party. Someone on this panel has a t-shirt he's going to show you now. I figured he might. <laughs> exactly. Before we get started, I'm just going to do very, very brief uh, introductions of each of the folks on this panel. They each wanted me to read a 20-minute bio, but I decided uh, not to. Uh, Matthew Dowd is the chief political analyst for ABC. He's the founder of Paradox Capital, and which is a social impact venture fund. He's worked for the likes of Arnold Schwarzenegger and George W. Bush. Mindy Finn is, was Evan McMullen's running mate, as you, as you may recall, from 2016. She's a co-founder of several groups, including Stand Up Republic, which is a nonpartisan political advocacy group. She's a digital and tech expert, and she's worked for the RNC, Mitt Romney, and also George W. Bush. Mark McKinnon, the guy with the hat, is, uh, the, is a commentator and advisor for all kinds of companies and candidates. He's worked for people as disparate as George W. Bush and Ann Richards, and he's the co-founder of something you may have heard of called No Labels, and he's also the co-host of the program The Circus. Charlie Sykes is an MSNBC contributor, and he's a conservative commentator, been a radio host for 23 years out of Milwaukee, and he also was the host of Indivisible, which was a national podcast for the first 100 days of the Trump presidency. And finally, the aforementioned Rick Wilson, who's a Republican strategist and media consultant, produced ads for many candidates and companies as well, and he's now a columnist in the Daily Beast, that column is of course called The Shrinking Violet. You may, you may, you, you may perhaps have read that, that, that column. Uh, the, this event is, is slated to last about an hour, but we want to save some time at the end, 15 minutes or so. Uh, you'll see mics out there for, for you folks to ask these, this fine panel some questions. If you want to tweet about it, remember that the hashtag is TribFest17. Uh, and uh, I will uh, be the person trying to run the show here with, with this panel, I probably just, as I said to Matt earlier, I just have to say hello. But <laughs> we're going to get started with Matt, since he is uh, the latest iteration now in this country's history of a country over party uh, uh, movement. Uh, and I just, I'll, I'll start with a very simple question, since they, one of the questions they asked is whether this is just a slogan on a t-shirt. <laughs> Why now, Matt? <laughs> This feels like a CNN election night panel where it's been <laughs> half the time introducing us and yeah. saying half the time saying goodbye. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, so that's a great question. I, I think, one, Donald Trump is president, so that is a short answer to the question. But a longer answer to the question, I think, is, is there comes moments in our country's history when there's a convergence of factors, when the, ec the economy is in fundamental change, the culture is in fundamental change, there's political change going on. And we've, we've experienced this before. We experienced this in the 30s and the 40s. We experienced this in the 1930s and 1940s. We experienced this in the 1850s and 1860s, and we experienced it in the founding of our republic. And so I think we are in that moment when the institutions, our political institutions, know longer fit the times. And I think actually Donald Trump's election is a symptom of that. Um, it, there's a problem unto itself that we can have a long conversation about. But I actually think he's also a, a telltale sign 
that the institutions that we have known in our politics no longer serve the majority of the country, and the country has been figuring out a way to express that over and over and over again. And so I think today, the fastest rising group of voters in the country are independents, people that both political parties are disliked by a majority of the country. We had two nominees of the major party for the first time in our history of polling, where two of the, major, the nominees of both political parties were disliked and distrusted by a majority of the country. And so we're in that moment. So I think that moment is gonna require some new institution, and that's why you see all of these things growing across the country. How that is gonna uh, uh, conform and form, I think is anybody's answer, but I think it now is a time just like it was before in our history. Anybody's You're supposed to solve this problem today for these folks, man. Well, I think all of us, I think everybody, I think one of the things that's incredibly powerful is that because of technology and because of the time, everybody can have a voice <coughs> in the process, unlike before. Money matters less, I, even though people think it matters more, it actually matters less today than ever before because of our ability to communicate to 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 people basically for no cost because of technology. And I think we all have an opportunity to express our opinions and what we feel like. So I actually think everyone in this room can be a leader of that, just like everyone at this, on this dais is a leader in some way in trying to fix those, those problems that we have. So I think it's time, but a lot, along the way, um, it, what develops in that and how it grows and what structure it has, I think is a more organic, and I think we're in that organic period. Well, let me just come down to, uh, since we started with the nice guy who's uh, always putting out these wonderful messages of unity on Twitter, let me go to evil over here and, 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 and say, I mean, seriously wow. though, Rick, you've, you've, listen, you were very, very strong on, on, on about Trump during the campaign, sure. a vile stain on the republic, uh, I think was one of the nicer things you, you, you said about him. That's about right. Uh, uh, is, is, is Matt right, though? Is, is there a way to get beyond? I mean, country over party, it sounds good. It's on Matt's T-shirt. He really does believe in it, though. Do you believe it's possible? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the, I think Matt's exactly right. Donald Trump is a symptom. He's a symptom of two very broken political parties and a broken media culture where these two silos uh, have basically become the, the, the vacuum chambers for the right and the left. And you end up with these results like we got in this election. And, and political monocultures that exist in those things end up producing bad outcomes. They end up producing people who are flawed candidates. And so we had a choice between you know, a flawed candidate on the left and a flawed candidate on the right. And, and no, Hillary Clinton is not as, as, as outright barking lunatic as Donald Trump was, but she was a terrible candidate to express the values that would have, would have made her more palatable to the general public. They would have made her a better candidate. I mean, felicity and luck are real in politics and she never had them. But, Again, I think Matt's right, and, and Trump is, that, is symptomatic of this breakdown in the institutions that we, that we used to have that mediated our politics. And, and, and the fact is, again, the, the upside of everybody can be a part of the solution is that there's less friction in the system and all that. The downside of everybody can be part of the solution is there's less friction for the green frog guys and the neo-Nazis and the crazy people as well. So that makes it incumbent upon people who ordinarily have not been heavily engaged in politics to step up, because if you don't, you're gonna get the outliers on both ends of the spectrum turning this country into something we won't recognize in 20 years. Mindy, you, uh, you essentially uh, tried to embody this uh, during the last campaign, saying country over party, leaving uh, your party, running uh, a as an independent. What did you learn? I learned that, well, first of all, you know, we ran a three-month campaign, and I was part of it for the second half of the campaign. 
That is an incredible. <laughs> so six weeks, it felt like six months or six years, but it was, it was a very short time. And, and so you look at the results and you might say, well, look, this is impossible. It's impossible to run an independent race. Um, they weren't able to do it. But there are some things that I think get lost in that narrative. First of all, our dollar spent per vote, to Matt's point, the barriers to entry in terms of the money that have to be raised mm. are lower today. Our dollar per vote was lower than any other candidate in the race. We had the best result in a single state of any candidate besides Trump and Hillary, just by getting in three months. And we were only on the ballot in 11 states, and that was in Utah. Um, and so with 21% of the vote. So I say that's not to say how great we were. What this gives me hope and, and about for the future is that there, this is possible. There is an opportunity for new leaders on an independent ticket to unite and strengthen the center uh, and, and to run and to, to win. So that's the first thing. The second thing, on the other hand, because there's always an on the other hand, is how the system is biased towards the two parties mm -hmm. and how difficult it is for an independent candidate to break in. You get shut out of debates. The ballot access thing, Mark and I were just talking about this, it would take $30 million to get on the ballot in all of these states across the country. The amount of time that you have to put in and the planning that you have to do to do that. The barriers are incredibly difficult because the system is secretaries of state are either Republicans and Democrats, and they have no interest to open it up to other, to other parties. To the point of the two other gentlemen who have spoken, that's why like, we're gonna have to rally around this as Americans. If this is something that we want, we're going to have to demand it, we're gonna have to invest in it, and we're gonna have to fight for it. Yep. You know, it's interesting. I, I love it when a, a guest on a panel uh, does a segue into the next question that I had in mind. I'll, I'll ask this of you. Uh, first, Mark, and that is, it's all, all this great ethereal talk, and we can do this, and everyone has to rally around it, and it's easy to be cynical about that, but what about these intractable, seemingly intractable institutional barriers that the two major parties have set up to, to an actual independent movement in the country working? Well, <clears throat> I think the dynamics for an independent candidacy have never been riper. In fact, they're part of the re it's part of the reason Donald Trump was successful. Mm -hmm. You remember that the first businessman candidate was not Donald Trump, it was Ross Perot. And that was 1992. And in the early 2000s, as I began to get disenfranchised by both the parties and thinking about what it would take to be, run an independent candidacy, I went back and looked at all the fundamentals, Matthew, of the, of the country at the time Perot ran, and trust in institutions and that sort of thing. And those things that sort of compelled the Perot candidacy in 92 were 10 times greater now than they were then, which would suggest that the opening for an independent sort of outsider businessman candidate was larger than ever, and of course Donald Trump was the one that took advantage of that. Uh, but I think what is highly likely at this point uh, is that uh, Donald Trump will run for re-election barring some other intervening factor, which is possible. What do you uh, mean by intervening factor? No, I'm just going, I can't go and that there'll be a, a, a great number of Republicans, progressive establishment Republicans and others who will not be happy with that choice but won't want to vote for the Democrats, so we'll look for an independent candidacy. And I think, well, I know that there are already people thinking about that, that will run as a, I mean, the Republicans who will run as an independent who will be happy to either win or throw the election to the Democrat who runs, uh, but they'll be happy with either outcome. But Charlie, I guess what I'm wondering, and a lot of these people out here are probably wondering, is if you're going to have a successful independent candidacy, can it be just someone disaffected from one of the major parties, or does it have to be someone who's a billionaire, like a Michael Bloomberg or a Mark Zuckerberg? Does it have to be someone with their own money? Uh, yes. Um, but, 
I, I, I want to I actually just sort of dial back, and I, I really I hate this. That I I'm actually, sorry. That, that I actually have the, the darker vision, that I am actually darker than Rick Wilson. <laughs> on, on, on we are making history bit. today here, <laughs> you know, folks. I mean, <laughs> this is a <laughs> young session. I'm going to go further. <laughs> please, yeah, have, please, please, please do. Because, I mean, I, I, I agree with, with the sentiments expressed here. I, I, I think that they are perhaps unduly optimistic, because I think that what's happening to our political culture um, is on a daily basis shocking, the attacks on, on the norms. And for a moment, Instead, we're all like fixated looking at Donald Trump. Um, it's hard to take your eyes off him, but I'd like to you know, take, turn the, the focus around to the rest of us, what, what he's doing to our country, what he's doing to the nature of our, um, of our dialogue, uh, the coarsening effect it's having on the culture, and that we're not gonna bounce back from this. I agree that, that he has not caused this. He, he is, uh, you know, obviously the dysfunction was a pre-existing condition in the Republican Party. <laughs> but not covered um, by the Republican bill. Oh, exactly. Right. It, would, it, would not have been, it would not have been covered. You know, but, you know, and we talk, we talk about, con you know, the, the fact that we even have to talk about country over party give, gives you an indication of how screwed we are. Um, because we could also be talking about decency over party, yeah. truth over party, honor over party. The Constitution. Um, or the Constitution over party. And one of the things that I guess has sort of shocked me and sort of rocked me back is this recognition of how fragile our political system and our norms are. Right. But I think we all thought that those norms and the Constitution protected us from certain things. And now we're finding out that essentially America was based on an honor system with the assumption that uh, you'd have honorable people in the White House. Well, what if we have a you know, fundamentally deeply dishonorable person? And I'm hoping I am wrong when I say I hate this. I'm, please convince me that I have too dark a vision. Because I, I sense a lot of complacency, people saying, well, of course our institutions will be able to constrain him. Of course, our democracy has, has, has encountered all of these challenges in the past. But remember, we are not immune from history. And my sense is that everything that's happening in terms of the vicious tribalism is going to get worse. That rather than this moment where everybody says, let's come together, and you know, embrace moderation. I'm trying to imagine big giant rallies of people going, moderation, moderation. Yeah. <laughs> I did, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing well, I don't, I, I, Let me just say one, one thing about that. The, 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 there's a good point on this, which is that we started a, an organization called Noble Labels six or seven years ago now, which with the idea of trying to rep, create a voice that represents the middle of American politics. Uh, and then we quickly realized that in order to do that, we really needed to get into Congress to make right. anything actionable. Mm -hmm. And there was an interesting study that the National Journal has done over the last 20 years, which is they, every, every year they do a study where they determine the number of members of Congress who overlap ideologically. In other words, where there are more progressive Republicans and conservative Democrats and where they overlap. 20 years ago, there were 224 that overlapped. The last study they did, four. Right, four. Right, right. So that's when we said, well, Jesus, we're going to represent the middle of America. We're going to be talking to four people in Congress. And that's when we had to recognize that we, our mission has to be to get, that is to recognize the country is polarized right. now and to get these, to get move on and Tea Party members right. in the room and talking together and bring those. I, I, well, I, 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 I want, I want that's, that. That's, maybe, let, let Matt go. Let Matt go. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe the flaw is to think that American politics is about ideas and issues rather than about tribal loyalty and attitudes. Well, I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. So first, 
I mean, I'm Irish Catholic, so I have darkness, right? Okay, good. <laughs> As Mark knows, I had a, in the 2004 campaign, I had a sign from, a quote from Yates, which says, the Irish have an abiding sense of tragedy which sustains them through temporary periods of joy. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a realist in the short term. I'm a realist in looking at this in the short term. I'm an optimist in the midterm, and I'm a dreamer in the long term. Um, I think everything you said, Charlie, I think is accurate. But I think, I mean, I actually think the founders set up this system, right, in, in the manner which which they did, understanding this kind of thing could happen, right? The problem we have today is who is going to hold this president accountable, right? That is the fundamental problem today. But didn't you say the institutions are broken and don't work? No, but the, inst the institutions, the political institutions are broken, but they were, our institutions as set up in the Constitution relied upon good men and good women. Right. That's what the, so the software, <laughs> right? The software defining all this is still good software, but the people running it right now, I mean, the, the, the problem is if Donald Trump was caught on the White House lawn eating a live baby, the members of Congress would go, well, we still got to pass the tax cut, so we can't do anything about it. There is a moral gap right now, in, in Congress particularly, where, where, these, where these smart, principled, good people in Congress are terrified of this man and his mob. They are terrified of Breitbart and Fox turning them into pariahs, and they will not take action that they know must be taken. They will not constrain him yet. And if they don't constrain him, we are going to go off the rails at some point. If but they don't constrain there him. Is, there is one thing Donald Trump has done, right? Accidentally, as most of the things that he's done are accidentally. He's, he, he has managed to unite a, a large segment of the country that wasn't, hadn't been united, that actually got out of their tribe. There is a whole, as everybody knows on this panel, there's a whole bunch of conservative people out there who believe in this thing. They may argue about yeah. the tax codes. Mm -hmm. They may argue about trade policy. They may argue about this, but they fundamentally believe in the same democratic norms and values of who we are, right? Donald Trump has managed to unite a large group of that. The problem we have is how does that get expressed in the system that we have in a way that one holds Donald Trump accountable and two preserves the norms right. that we need as a democracy okay. or as a republic. I, I, since, since, yeah. you, since you've gone to quoting Yates, I got a Yates quote for you. <laughs> but I always I, I've thought about for the last year and a half that the worst are full of passionate mm -hmm. intensity, while the best Center lack all whole. conviction. And I think that you see the loudest, <laughs> angriest voices who've been driving this, the best, the folks in Congress who will wring their hands, who needs to, need to hold uh, Donald Trump accountable, um, are, are the ones sort of you know, waiting for the right poll, that right moment. But I think that's where we have the gap, that I think that a lot of people, that the, the, the angriest voices, and I know it's, it's always a dangerous thing to get caught up in, in the moment, but I just want to think about the moment we're in right now. We're in this war of words with a, with a nuclear power, we have, you know, half the country is, you know, on the, on the south and the west, has natural disasters. And the president of the United States is, is, is picking a fight with NBA players and NFL players. He's and not a well man. He is a deeply yeah. not a well man, but <laughs> this, this will further divide and inflame. This will spiral and escalate very, very quickly. And, you know, that, that's, that's why I think things get worse. That's, that's why I, I yeah. say the software is still, the, the code is still right. But you're not, we're not executing that code. And right now, the fear factor of Trump's social media presence and his command over a certain segment of the conservative media terrifies these guys. And, and they're just paralyzed. And so instead of saying, out, 
they rub their hands and go, oh, I'm very deeply concerned. Yeah, troubled. The president is threatening to launch a nuclear war and kill 25 million people. That is troubling. Yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, <laughs> if, it's, if we're a country of principles and, and constitutional rule and the rule of law, the system's going to save us. If we're a country that becomes defined by a man and his mob and who's angrier and who's louder and who's more vengeful, we're in trouble. Well, let me jump in here, if you don't mind, uh, panel, for, for a moment. Because uh, and, and, I, want, I want to ask uh, Mindy to get back into this uh, conversation. Uh, I don't want to make this all about Donald Trump, although I understand the overlay of Trump in, in this discussion. Congress was broken before uh, Trump got there. There's just a different kind of dysfunction now. And I guess everyone up here is, is and everyone uh, out there is wringing their hands about what's going on. Uh, but is the solution to tear down? All those institutions? I mean, I think Rick, to some extent, is saying that, the, 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 that that's not the answer. Or is that the answer? I mean, to tear down everything, the major parties should not exist the way that they have in the past. I mean, there were civil, there were, there were civil wars inside the parties in the, in the past as well. Why is now different, or is it? Well, first of all, there are some things about the challenges that we face today that are, yes, we can look back to history and say we've been here before, but there are aspects of the challenges we face that are vastly different. And one of those is the media and the way the media operates and sure. the speed at which information is, uh, is communicated, the way we access information. And that's led to this thing today where, look, good, bad, and ugly has always occurred. So there was, we should have had an expectation that in the era of the internet, we would be good, bad, and ugly. The problem is that the bad and the ugly is amplified and accelerated at a speed that we've never seen. And so the we're at a place today, one of the challenges we have with the parties and why certain things might be totally acceptable and members of Congress you know, look past it and say that Donald Trump is the, the greatest you know, president we've ever seen, when they'll then look to the other party and say that's totally unacceptable if Hillary Clinton were to do it. The reason we're there is because we're not, even, we're not singing off the same song sheet. And the, our sense of truth no longer exists. Truth is eroded to such a point that we don't operate from the same set of facts. That's a challenge that, that doesn't exist today that existed before. Civic education is a challenge. We've seen you know, these polls that have come out recently that show a small minority of the country can even name the three branches of government who can explain what the First Amendment is. These are challenges that we have to, to overcome. I, will, I don't think the institutions need to be torn down, but there are very distinct challenges we face today that, um, that did not exist when we went through these periods in previous points. I, I also, I mean, I don't, I mean, there's a question is, is do the institutions, absolutely institutions need to be reformed, right? Mm -hmm. Do new things and options need to arise? Yes. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous in today's day and age that you can go in the grocery store and pick from 280 kinds of bread and 212 kinds of toothpaste, but when you're in the ballot box, you're basically told, pick between these two. <laughs> and it's a the system, and the problem, as laid out in all this whole system is, does the Democratic Party need to change and adapt and be a more functional majority party in this country? Yes. They don't, can't hold, they don't hold most of the offices in the country. They won the popular vote in the presidential race, they can't hold the offices. So they have a, they have a geography problem. The Republicans have a demography problem. They're in, in, unless the Republicans change, they will never win the popular vote for president unless they fundamentally change because demography, demography is against them. But f I think fundamentally the American public 
And this is the argument that was always that's given by any monopoly. This is the taxi industry that basically tried to fight Uber and Lyft and all of that. And everybody said it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And then people are given more choices and then people figure out what they want. I think, yes, can the Democratic Party reform itself? Yeah, it has before. The Democratic Party today is very different than the Democratic Party from 100 years ago, just like the Republican Party. So I'm not, I consider an option is the major parties reform themselves, but I actually think the only way that's gonna happen is if something else arises to give people option. And the biggest barrier isn't structural, isn't money, it's psychological. It's a psychological barrier that the American public has been told that the only choice you have is to pick between these two because if you pick one or the other, if you vote third party or vote another party, then you're, you're throwing your vote away. And until we break that, and once that breaks, it's going to be a floodgate. It's going to be a floodgate. And I think that it fundamentally it happens not at the presidential level first. It happens at the state and local level first, like all movements. They don't go, they're not top down. So when somebody gets elected for Congress as an independent, for the Senate as an independent, for governor as an independent, for state rep as an independent, for mayor as an independent, then it happens. But I think once that breaks, once that psychological barrier breaks, then Katie bar the door. Well, I, I disagree with that. I think it'll have to happen at the top. And if it happens the way you say, it'll be 30, 40 years. It's going to be 20 years. It's going to be 20 Does everyone years. agree? You, you agree, Rick, that it's going to take that long? I, I think there could be one possible scenario where it happens a lot faster, and that is if states start passing redistricting amendments and redistricting laws that, that departisanize redistricting. Now, I will tell you, this is going to mean for Democrats, you're going to have a lot fewer African-American members of Congress. You're going to have a lot fewer hard left members of Congress. But you're going to end up with a much different balance sheet, uh, and it's going to be much more representative. I think this is something that both parties have gotten away from, and they, that it's troubled me well before the Trump situation, is the parties have become less about representing your state or your district and more about representing an ideological checklist from the top. You know, the, the, the contract with America in 1994 was a brilliant political pitch, but it also sort of set people into this, this mode where a Republican congressman from Alabama has to represent the, the, the same exact set of policies that a Republican congressman from upstate New York does. Those are not the same worlds. But this ideological monoculture in the party that now, and, and that's partly because of Fox, and, and partly because of this, this sort of, of singular focus on you've got to do these exact things no matter where you're from, um, we've gotten away from that. That, that ideological overlap of, of Republicans and conservative in liberal areas and Democrats in conservative areas is gone now because those checklist items are so thick. And redistricting is the killer app underneath that. Like I said, Democrats will have to accept that they're going to have a much different looking Congress you know, the co coalition. They're not going to get the sort of, um, uh, of, of identity politics checklist wins they want everywhere they think they're going to get them. That's going to change a lot. Because look, as a Republican who's done redistricting stuff in the past, you know who calls us up right away? African-American members of Congress and says, hey, take care of my seat. Even though it screws a bunch of other good Democratic candidates' possibilities to win seats. So if, they're going to, if, if you do that, you end up with a much different looking Congress, then you end up with a much different looking set of ideological chess pieces. But, but the people who are, are the elected officials are not going to, are you talking about, you're going to have to have these ballot propositions across states where the public votes these interests? When the, whenever they're on the ballot, the public votes for them. Right, so the, but that's how it's going to have to happen, yeah, right? Yeah, pretty much. That's, that's the only shortcut to it. The longer term thing is if Rupert Murdoch dies early and, and Fox <laughs> changes. Oh, I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating at all. When, they, when it comes to the right, Here's the ideological influence stack. Way up here is Fox News. Way up here. It drives everything downstream. 
Down here is Rush and the talk radio stuff and all that stuff. The bloggers, the Breitbart, all that's trash and, and, and just flotsam. If, the, if Fox News was, was altered, or if Lachlan and James decide that they're not going to have Fox News be the, the Hannity clown show every night, uh, and, and it stops feeding that system the same sort of thing it feeds it right now, you have a much different ideological climate pretty quickly because Fox has turned on a dime from being limited government conservatives to nationalist populist lunatics. So, so um, <clears throat> Charlie, yeah. how, do you, how are you going to take that insult from Rick about talk radio? Oh, I didn't take it as an insult at all. I, um, I, 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 act, I actually, though, somewhat disagree that there was a time when, you know, Fox was, you know, it was all downstream. But um, I think that the media ecosystem has changed very radically with social media. I think, that what, I think what you saw back in 2015 and 2016 was that Fox was trying to, um, was reluctant to go all in with the Trumpkins. Um, and, they, and they were beaten and bullied into it by Breitbart and by the other trolls and the flying monkeys of the social mm -hmm. media. Um, and, and, and so I, I do think it's been radically decentralized in, in that. Um, do not assume that Fox is the only driver of all of this. Don't, and you don't even assume that we fully understand you know, how deep it is. I mean, all of the media has been turned on its head. If we were having this discussion three, four years ago, we'd all be talking about the nuclear power of, uh, of television. Now, uh, I don't think that we necessarily do know that. By the way, on the issue of the independent, um, I, of course, nobody knows the answer to this, but you know, everything could change. Look what happened in France, by the way, with, with their presidential election. Uh, you asked me about a billionaire getting in the election. So, you know, let's say that we have, uh, you know, Michael Bloomberg or, or somebody else. I don't have any names that I'd like to share with anybody because it's, it's kind of gross. But um, yeah, <laughs> you, you could certainly imagine a, you know, one big moment where somebody comes in and breaks the binary choice because you're absolutely right. You cannot overstate the power of that binary choice. Why did good, decent people, why did women who watch the Access Hollywood video, why did they vote for Donald Trump? Because it was a binary choice. It was the Flight 93 election. And Hillary Clinton was not just simply wrong, she was evil, she had to be stopped, we were all gonna die, and therefore, no matter how awful Donald Trump was, um, he, you know, Hillary was worse. Those are the kinds of moral and intellectual choices you make if it's binary, if there had been a really convincing alternative. It would be fascinating to know what, what would have happened. I think well, you, would have had a, you would have had a decency. The other, the other yeah. thing, that, yeah. the, the other problem, I think, that diff different than France, that we have our own unique institution called the Electoral College, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so when Ross Perot, Ross Perot, people forget, led the national ticket for about three weeks against mm -hmm. Bill Clinton when he was at his low and George Herbert Walker Bush when he was at his low. Ross Perot wasn't ahead in any one state. Ross Perot was leading the ticket, leading the national polls, but wasn't guaranteed winning any single right. state yep. when he was ahead nationally. And part of the problem we have is not only all of this media network, but people are associating, people are, are associating themselves in how they live and how they move in red and blue manners, right? And the Electoral College is a very big impediment to that, so you have places, I could see an easy presidential race where you had a, somebody getting 36% of the vote that maybe only carries four states or five states in this. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm all for more choices and all of that, but we have a, 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 a difficult impediment at, in the initial stages until people really finally break out of this completely where the electoral college almost is a guarantee in the moment
You think the Electoral College should be abolished, Matt. Is that what you're saying? Um, no. I actually, here's what I think. I think that every state could do this. One, you're never going to pass a constitutional amendment to abolish the Electoral College in the environment we're in. It has to pass every state. It has to overwhelmingly pass Congress. That's never going to happen in the circumstances we're in. But what could happen is every state could pass a, a, a law that says whoever wins the popular vote gets the electoral votes of that state. Well, that, that, that's the national popular vote movement yeah. that exists. And that, to me, yeah. I think that's where we ought to head. I think that's what Larry Lessig's doing right yeah. That's what we ought to have. There, I mean, this system now that we have, where Hillary Clinton wins the election by three million votes and loses the Electoral College overwhelmingly, is, is a system that is fraught with creating divisiveness and a lack of ability to govern our country. And until we address that, it's going to be very difficult to govern the country until we address that. Does everybody else in the panel agree with that, that the national popular vote movement is a, a good short-term solution? Helps, helps the process along? Anybody disagree? Uh, I probably disagree, in, 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 only in the, in the sense that I just don't think it's going to happen. And, um, and, 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 and I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, the Constitution, I, I try not to take the Constitution lightly, it's wired in. So I, I agree that that's, that, that with math, that, that it, it locks us into this sort of binary choice, because it's hard for an independent to get to 270. It's just a really tough gig, because you know that the Democrats are going to end up with five or six states that they're going to keep for a long, long time, and Republicans are going to do the same with five or six big states they're going to keep for a long, long time. And so the, the, the calculus is very difficult um, for, for an independent candidate, you know, pending whether they're a billionaire who deploys their resources appropriately and owns Facebook and all that sort of thing. It would also depend on Democrats. Yeah. If, Democrats nominate, if Democrats nominate a reasonable a candidate here, here. that can speak to the country as a whole, yeah. Right, that can speak out to every from Missouri to New Jersey to California to Washington to Texas or whatever, then there's no room for an independent. Then that Democrat, I think, right. in a race against Donald Trump, who's probably never going to get above 42 or 43 percent approval rating in his entire presidency, he's probably capped at 42 or 43 in that environment, but there's no guarantees the Democrats will nominate a candidate like that. Well, I'd say uh, unlikely at this point, probably. <laughs> uh, I think you're I'm right just giving the way to. Sort of dialogues going in the Democratic yep. Party right now. Uh, I think you're right, Mark. Let me, right. In, in a lot of ways, we have four functional uh, uh, de facto parties: the sort of Trumpian nationalist populist troll party, the remnant of the Republican Party, whatever sort of zo the zombie Republican Party. You've got the sort of more functional Clintonish Democrats, and you've got the Bernie Party. Yep. And I think I think the Bernie Party's power on the on the Democratic side is as is as dangerous for their. Ability that, to win. But that's where the gravity is. Yeah, oh, it is. Absolutely. And the passion's all there. Look, if the Democrats found, I'm just going to just gonna do a little alternate history here. If the Democrats found a war veteran, male or female, from some Midwestern state who was smart enough to get out the first day and say, you know, gun control's not a big part of my campaign, and run talking about the economy and get out of the ditch of the whole Democratic Party cliche um, that, 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 that Hillary carried like a five million ton weight, Republicans would be in big trouble. Well, what's Sally that guy? There's that, yeah. there's that mayor from, from Indiana. What's, what's, what's Sally his name? Yeah. Pete. No, no, there's Pete, Pete Mayor Pete. 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 Yeah, he, yeah. He, he, yeah, he fits that profile uh, a little bit. But I'm glad, I'm glad uh, someone brought up uh, uh, Democrats uh, on this panel, which uh, surprisingly has, I guess there weren't enough chairs. But uh, 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 <laughs> uh, I, I, guess, I guess it is a serious question because people like to talk about Trump and, and the coarsening of, 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 
of, of, the, of the discourse. Has anybody seen what that Bernie wing of the party says about the, every other member of the party? And it keeps getting <laughs> worse and worse and worse. And so how do you have somebody to use Matt's word, which almost seems comical in these days, reasonable uh, person be nominated by that party or any other party? How does that happen? Mindy, you look like you want to answer this one. Well, no, this is something I'm, I'm very concerned about. I'm concerned about that we could go into the 2020 election and we have a uh, growing kind of nationalist movement on the right. Some might say it's fascist, nationalist movement on the right and a socialist movement on the left. And there's nothing for those of us in the middle. And when I think about this idea of country over party, we spent a lot of time talking about third party candidates or independents. But to me, country over party is, is not only that. It's leaders who are willing to stand up and speak truth rather than cater and placate to the two ex the extremes within their own party. And we have not, instead, that's, it does not appear that's even on the Democratic side, that's what's going to occur. A lot of people are chasing Bernie Sanders' tales, so the things that he said, and this isn't to uh, disparage Bernie Sanders, but just to say they saw how successful he was in the, in the 2016 election primary. And so instead of looking at how do we bring over some of these voters that, uh, you know, Democrats that flipped for, for Donald Trump, how do, we, how do we cater to real true centrist independence in the country? Instead, of course, they're focused on the primary, and so they're chasing Bernie Sanders' tail. We need a place, if it's not going to be a third party, we need more people within those parties who are strong leaders, mm -hmm. who are willing to stand up and stand strong on the, the core principles that have united this country for a long time, liberty, equality, and just really the, the idea that truth matters. I also think, Great point. I'm, I'm gonna give some advice to the Democrats. Yeah. I'm gonna give advice to the Democrats. <laughs> Is they don't need to talk, in order to win the primary, they don't need, we, Donald Trump has demonstrated, and Bernie Sanders also I think has demonstrated, is they don't need to go down this ideological path to win it. What they do need to do, this is my view, what they, if a Democrat stood up today and said the first order of business is removing the cancer from the White House, right? And that's, we're gonna do whatever is possible and I'm gonna run, just like Barack Obama gave the first speech opposing, confronting George W. Bush, and opposing the Iraq war, and it set him apart from everybody else, and he was able to take all kinds of stands and all kinds of issues because he set himself apart. If, the Demo if a Democrat stood up and said, listen, let's, we'll argue about health insurance, we'll argue about gun control and gun reform, we'll argue about tax policy, we'll argue about all those things, but the first order of business is what do we do about this because it's, it's a threat to our democracy and a threat to our republic, and if they carried that message from now until 2020, they would have a huge, if they did it in a, in a charismatic way, speaking to the country, it would unite a huge block of the country and leave the debate to all, on all the other ideology and all that other stuff and did it in an authentic way. That to me is a path to victory for a Democrat. I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, you're saying it's just a pure anti-Trump message. That's basically what they're doing. They need a positive vision. No, they're arguing, they're arguing amongst themselves about whether or not no, they should have single -trump. Payer. I mean, that's No, crazy. nobody's doing anything about it. Nobody is doing anything. What, what can they do except run against him and beat him? They, they, every day they could, every day, every single day, a United States senator can stand up and say, I'm going to withhold funding from the White House on every single one of these things. Well, I'm here's stand what I, think. I think there's a fundamental shift that happened in this country, which is that because of policies in this country that we reached a point where instead of the election being about the future, like Barack Obama ran, there were enough people in this country that said, I've been left behind. The people, I don't have a voice in Washington anymore. Nobody recognizes my plight. 
whether it's right or wrong, whether it was because of their own fault, they blame the government. You're, and until the Democrats get a message and a messenger you're, you're who addresses making, you're that. Making an argue, I'm making an argument about how a candidate can win the Democratic primary without getting trapped in an ideological box so that they get framed in a general election. You're making, I totally agree, in a general election okay. argument. All right. All right. I'm saying a Democrat could emerge if they emerged. It doesn't mean you have to be for all these things that everybody says you have to be for, but you're going to have to present a force on behalf of democracy to confront Donald Trump in a day-in, day-out way, and I have not seen that from any Democrat yet. Can I, what, what, I want to go back to what Mindy had to say, though, but, and I'm not going to get involved in this particular argument here because de de I put the Democratic Party in sort of not my problem, you know? But it is our problem. I, I, no, 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 it's like, it's like their crazy uncle is their problem, our crazy uncle is our problem. Um, but <laughs> We all have a crazy uncle we, in the we, Oval we, Office. We, 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 we Charlie, have, Charlie, before you get going, yeah, this is country yeah. over party. we gotta be, I, we got to be concerned about all the crazy uncles. Well, exactly. <laughs> well I wanted to do the country over party that it's not just about presidential elections. And, you know, and I, I was thinking about, you were talking about, you know, senators standing up. You know, Last night, the president went down to Alabama and he spent a good deal of his time, you know, attacking Senator John McCain. And you go on in social media right now and on the right, you know, John McCain, you know, should get out of office. John McCain's a traitor. John McCain is a sellout. John McCain lied. Right now, I got to say, you know, if I had to say who in America right now embodies country over party, it would be John McCain. In this moment. Right now. In, the, in this moment right now. Um, John, Mc, John, Mc, John McCain's motto when he ran was country first. Right? Exactly. And, and, and there, there was kind of a moment there that it's almost like we have, have lost the ability to recognize, oh my goodness, you understand, this man is such a fundamental patriot. And for Donald Trump to be questioning, you know, John McCain at this particular moment, you know, Mr. Make America Great Again is, is obscene, of course. Um, but you would hope that John McCain's example would be inspiring to other members of the Senate who might remember historically when senators actually had that sense of independence, you know, and were willing to, you know, to stand in the well of the Senate and say, you know, okay, I know what my party wants, you know, I know what, uh, what my president wants, but it's just not right and I'm going to do this. So again, kind of my, my shout out, I, I don't want to go through this whole thing on a panel of country over party without without uh, giving some kudos to uh, Senator John McCain. But I, I think that's a good point because what I get a little bit nervous sometimes when we just talk about independent candidates and the barriers being lower and that kind of thing is that opening up the gates to all types of candidates can be good, it can also be bad. It's yeah. like opening up media to all types of voices. Right. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily good. Donald Trump, for all intents and purposes, was an independent candidate. As right. Mark said from the start, right. he took advantage right. of these lower barriers. He took advantage of weakening party institutions in order to get to where he was. So it can't just be that we talk about we need independent and we need new voices. What we need, to your Charlie's point about John McCain, are, are patriots. We need people who are willing to stand up and, and say what needs to be said. We need people who are not thinking about how do I, again, have placate to these, this extreme base by using every kind of social cleavage that's available to me. You know, Donald Trump last night, it's, you know, he could be a, he could be a Democrat, he could be an independent or a Republican. That's, the issue are not his policies. The things that we should unite around when we're opposing him, and this is something I think Democrats are doing wrong, again, to give them advice, is it's not about opposing him on every policy issue. That's not what is most egregious in terms of what he's doing. What's most egregious is what he's doing to the character of our nation. Exactly. What's most egregious is that he's the that's first right. president exactly right. exactly that we've ever had who feels no sense of duty to country. Right. 
And you know, I, I'm all for we can have businessmen who run. I think it, it could make sense. But it's, he is the first president, and people forget about this, who either has not served in the military or held another elective office. Is because there is nothing about his life and his career that shows he cares about service or cares about anything other than himself. Oh, so I love independent candidates, but let's. But the idea is to open the gates for people who can be the John McCain's and not necessarily the Donald Trump. Let me just ask one more question, and then if you do, if you do have questions out here, uh, I, I think someone has a handheld mic. We'll start taking questions uh, after that. Is there someone out there with a the handheld mic? Does anybody have it? Can we see it? There's mic right Are here. there mics up there? Okay, yeah. good. So line up, but I just want to ask one last question and pivot off of something that both Charlie and, and uh, Mindy said. Talking about John McCain, and he's, and he's getting similar accolades from others, but really the reason that John McCain is being seen now as a country over party guy is because he objects to the, to the, the generation of the Senate right. and, 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 and how this bill is, they're, they're trying to pass it, not necessarily what, 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 what's in the bill. So, so the question I have is, is that, is there a place now in this country, Matt talked about reforming the parties, where if you had a stronger Republican Party that really stood for all the things that Rick believes in, that Charlie believes in, Matt and Mark and, and, and Mindy believe in, and a stronger Democratic Party where you actually have believe in things as opposed to the cult of personality and anything Bernie says is, is, is great in the same way that anything Donald Trump says is great, wouldn't that be better for the country? I, I think two things to obtain on this. First off, stronger parties would be uh, uh, remediating some of the politics that we do in this country would be, a, would be a, a thing that got us back into a more centrist pose overall. I also think that these are folks right now, the only people that can functionally oppose the corruption and degeneration of what Donald Trump is causing are members of a co-equal branch of government, and they forget that. They forget there are members of Congress who say that they work for Donald Trump. Right. If they believe that's true, they ought to be out the door so fast it can't hit them on the ass, right. because that is just wrong. They need, to, they need to take their responsibilities as sworn officials of, this, uh, of their states and districts more seriously, and their, and, their, and their vow to uphold the Constitution more seriously, because right now they don't. And, and right now they are, they are, they are, they are you know, co-conspirators practically in a lot of the things that he's done that, that, have, that I think the damage, we haven't even seen the extent yet. Anybody else want to weigh in on that before I'll, we take I'll, questions? Let me, I'm just going to add one thing. I okay. mean, I think what John McCain did was fabulous. I think standing up for all that. But before I take John McCain home to meet my parents and get married to him, before I do that, I mean, he's great and all that. Let's, I mean, I want to see John McCain over the, this is a great moment, but over the long haul, because I don't, I don't soon forget John McCain brought us a female version of Donald Trump oh God, yeah. in 2008 that exacerbated our politics in such a way that got us step by step and the Republican Party step by step by step by step to what happened in 2016. Yeah, but there's a statute of limitations. Come on. I know, but I'm, I'm, I, I want to have some time. I want a long engagement. I want a long engagement. Well, Matt, yeah. while you're running that uh, Democratic primary campaign in 2020, you may not have much time uh, to do that. So we're going to take some questions. Here's how, here, here's how it's going to work. Let me just set the ground rules. Please keep your questions as brief as possible. This is not an opportunity to give speeches. I want to hear uh, from this panel. I'll repeat the question. We'll take as many uh, as, as we can. Uh, panelists, not everybody has to jump in on every question, but I'm not going to call anybody jump in uh, as you can. We'll get to as many as possible. Someone up here eventually is going to give us uh, the hook, but I will ignore them as long as we can. Go ahead. You start. 
Okay, well, my question is about a candidate like Seth Moulton, who I've been reading a lot about. I'm a Democrat, but I'm a little disturbed by how far left the party's going. I think he's a war hero. He's somebody who has uh, been able to appeal to, you know, Republican military leaders, and somebody who can remind people that the, you know, the president is supposed to be the president of all of us, and that all those young men and women in the armed forces are not there fighting for him personally. They are supposed to be, you know, fighting for the country and the Constitution. Well, I, I think a, a Democratic nominee that was a veteran would be the best thing that could happen to the Democratic Absolutely. Party. Absolutely. And I hear great things about South Mountain. I agree. Yeah. But, you know, keep in mind, this is probably part of the, I mean, I agree with everything that Charlie and Mindy said about we need patriots. But for some, I, and I also think 90% of people that enter politics are good people, well-intentioned, want to do the right thing. But something, they're going into a sick building and they're getting, there's lead in the pipes and there's mold on the floors yeah. mm -hmm. and they're getting sick as they enter the building. Keep in mind, Tim Ryan, who is a very much a figure who I think would appeal across the country, was basically stopped by the Democratic caucus because he was not what they wanted in this. And so I, and I, I agree with a call to patriotism. I agree, obviously, with country over party. But there's something inherently in our system that does not allow the best of us to sort of serve well Absolutely. and do what's yeah. right. Well, let me, let me just add on to that, which is I disagree with the 90%, because, uh, and this goes to what Mindy said, I think our politics has reached a point and has over the last decade or so where good people are not attracted to politics anymore. In fact, just the opposite. It's people who need the mirror of politics to see their reflection. It's going to get worse. And so, you know, so it, when we say country before party and what John McCain does, we need people who are willing to take actions that benefit the country that may not benefit them. That, that are unpopular may hurt them, politically or financially or otherwise. And so, uh, you know, we need more people. But, I, you know, part of the problem is the people that are in politics. Right? All right, let, let's take another question. Go ahead, sir. Hi, my name is Michael D. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Um, I'm on the cusp of making a decision to run against Pete Sessions in the 32nd District uh, in Texas. The question That's a very you. winnable district. Very well, winnable it, district. It, it is. The, Live the, political here, consulting. What do you know? Yeah. Go, go, go. <laughs> But, but here's my question. Um, I, I'm a uh, more, more centrist on economic issues, but much more liberal on the social issues. I think the right place to run from is as an independent. But since 1956, there's been 27,000 elections that have occurred for members of Congress, and the only person that's consistently done it as an independent is Bernie Sanders, which is kind of an amazing statistic when you think about it. Why should I or should I not run as an independent? 27,000 reasons. <laughs> well, if you think the moment is right, I, I, here, here's, I'll answer this. I think the moment is right, but I also think there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to run and put their shoulder against the wall and put cracks in it, and maybe the person behind them. You may win, but you may not, but it may actually help break the wall for the woman behind you. Right, that wants to run or whatever. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying you can't. But I think it all is in how does that race, and I don't know anything other than that it's a winnable seat. But you see, you've also just expressed that binary problem. You're a, you're a progressive on social issues and you're a conservative on, on fiscal issues, and so you have to be an independent, right? Because the Republican Party, and right. there's no place for you otherwise, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where most of America really is. And so, God bless you. I hope you run as an independent. Well, thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you. Good luck. Good luck. Go ahead, sir. Hi. So you spoke about the software of the system being fundamentally solid. 
Um, maybe to stretch the analogy a little bit, if you look at the history of rhetoric in our country politically for the last 40 years from the right, there's been a successful campaign wage so that for much of America, the term liberal or Democrat immediately means somebody who's going to lock you up for having guns, somebody who's going to kill babies, somebody who wants to institute Sharia law. And there are a lot of people who pretty much rock solid believe that. Is that turned into what's in essence a, let's say, a virus that's infected that software? Well, I, I hate to do whataboutism, but there are an awful lot of Democrats in this country that look at Republicans and say, you're a bunch of gun-toting, inbred hicks, cousin-screwing bubbas who can't even think about global warming. You know, you get a lot of that stuff. And there's a lot of that, that, that nastiness on both sides of the equation. And the rhetorical heat is it, it, it's not this, look, there have been ugly campaigns in this country since our founding, but there is a certain silo effect on both sides where it's, those people are unacceptable, that tribe must be destroyed. That's, a, that's something I find that, that it, you know, and look, we've all probably contributed to it in our ways. Believe me, I've nuked enough Democrats with TV ads for candidates over the years, and we've all done our, done our role in that on, on, the, on the Republican side of this equation. But there is a danger level, I think, that we've approached where it's, those people can't marry my daughter. Those people can't talk to me. I'm not going to hire that person because they don't believe in exactly what I believe in. And this ideological monoculture on both sides of the equation, I think, is, is, is a, it, it empowers very bad things and very bad people. Can I just follow up on that? Because that's a great point. And, and your, your, your point about the virus, and I, mean, I was in talk radio, and so I know exactly what you're talking about here. And everything you said is true. But... The flip side of that is, I mean, is there a single Republican who has run for national office in the last 20 years who has not been called a racist and a bigot? Um, the, the crying wolf out there you know, became so intense that two things happened. Number one, when the real thing came along in 2016, what was the language? The, the, the ammunition was gone. Plus, I think a lot of conservatives said, okay, so Mitt Romney was a racist. John McCain was a racist. George Bush won was a racist. Every, everyone's been a racist. I've been called a racist, you know, um, because I want to cut the marginal tax rate. So uh, when somebody says, no, 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 Donald Trump is trafficking in, in racist imagery. There is the alt-right, which is really a racist organization. You had a lot of people who you know, basically shrugged their shoulders, rolled their eyes, and said, same old, same old. So, you know, what, what Rick is talking about, though, it, is, uh, is exactly right. We have created these alternative reality silos. We do not communicate with one another, which makes it incredibly easy to demonize the other side. And um, I think it would be a mistake for, to, to assume that only one side has done that. All right, well, let's try to get to as many questions as we can. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, my name is Eileen Ladd. I'm a resident of Austin, Texas, and I'm a Democrat, and I am not represented at all at the federal level. No matter what I do, I call, I write. But uh, redistricting gerrymandering has completely rendered my vote null. What do you have to say about that? Can you move into Lloyd Doggett's district? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I can't any offer. Well, I think Austin's a, is a really good example of gerrymandering. I mean, you know, the, the Republicans did everything they could to take out every, and yeah. they controlled the, 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 the census and the huh. redistricting and screwed every Democrat in Travis County. Sure. And they tried to screw Lloyd Doggett and took his district down to McAllen or someplace down near the border, and yep. yet he was still good enough to, to win that district. Hmm. So, I mean, I think that gets to the fundamental issue I think we all agree on is that the redistricting yep. is a huge problem that needs to be fixed. Yeah, and this doesn't offer immediate hope, but we spent time talking about the Electoral College and whether that could be reformed, but that's not the only reform that's, that's possible. Oh, no. There are others. So there's term limits, for example, which there's a certain movement behind. There's, 
in some states, they've started to do, at least at the state legislative level, multi-member districts or ranked choice voting. Ways to break up this binary choice that we have or this problem where if you're a Democrat living in Austin, you don't have anybody that represents you. Or if you're a Republican in Manhattan, you don't have anybody that represents you. Um, so there are, there actually are organizations and there are, there is some support in some states to try out some of these other reforms at the local level. So at least you're being represented um, and, and even bringing those potentially to Congress. I think that's a long way off, but we should just look at the Electoral College because we're upset about the presidency. There are reforms that can happen across the board that can make us feel and more Can I say one more thing? You're not, you are still represented. Your representative is just doing a shitty job. Okay, because frankly, members of Congress have become very insulated and they ignore 95% of the stuff that comes over the transom if it doesn't meet their ideological filter. And it is so something that, that, that I, I find, it grates on me tremendously because it, it, the, again, I go back to this. You, if you're a member of Congress, Republican or Democrat, you're not representing, hypothetically, a checklist of items that appear either in Mother Jones or Breitbart. You're supposed to represent the people who live in your damn district. I, I, it's just something we've got to get back to. All right, we're getting the hook, so we're going to take one more question, and uh, that'll be it. Go ahead. Thank you. I serve on the city council, and I'm wondering what role of local government can do in uh, country over party. Um, I, that's a great question. I'll just jump in here. Go for it. Um, I mean, the, the great thing is see at the local level is, I mean, we see more sort of representation of no labels, culture, and mm -hmm. DNA at, at the local level, particularly in city council races, because they are largely nonpartisan. So you have to run on your ideas as opposed to the cloak of a party. And I think that that's really powerful. So I think that really what we're seeing is much greater uh, uh, production, uh, construction, produ productive work at the local level that is becoming, I mean, increasingly what we're seeing in Congress and the no labels work is like, look what's happening in so-and-so city council. Look what's happening here in this, in, this, in this community and district. So I think the positive things that are happening in government are happening at the local level and bubbling up and, and hopefully w that's where you know, it'll come from, I think, and, which I think yeah. Matthew does. Uh, well, I, so and, and let me, I'll just add which, an answer to your question, which is tied to his question, or requires his question. To me, that's where change happens, right? It happens in our neighborhood, it happens in our communities. There's only one level of government still fundamentally trusted by the American public, and that's local government, because they can see, feel, and touch it. They think it's responsive, and it's innovative, which Washington isn't. Washington isn't responsive. Washington isn't innovative. Washington doesn't do fundamental reforms. Absolutely. But ultimately, our leaders, the reason why local is so important, and I'm going to say don't give up hope, and regardless of what your crazy congressperson is doing and all of that, leaders don't lead. They follow. They follow what we want, right? And when we show our worst instincts, to go to something that Charlie said and that Rick said, when we show our worst instincts, they reflect our worst instincts. And until we start treating each other differently until we start acting differently each other until we consume information differently everybody in this room just because you're a conservative doesn't mean you should only watch fox news and just because you're a progressive doesn't mean you should only watch msnbc until we act differently and and look at things differently our representatives are never going to change but the first place they can change is local government so all right, count on you. All right, well, let me just say one, a couple quick things, and then, then we'll let you go. First of all, I should have mentioned earlier that uh, Matt's going to be doing uh, book signing right outside uh, this uh, ballroom. His new book's called A New Way, which solves all these problems. We wouldn't have had to have this panel. Uh, 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 but I also hope that all of you will really appreciate the high quality of, uh, of these, of these uh, panel members and give them a round of applause.
Thanks for coming. Chief in Austin, he was a great police chief. Nothing partisan about that. Uh, and Art Acevedo was among those in the city of Houston in the hurricane-affected areas who stepped up and did extraordinary work. Uh, I'm looking forward uh, to this conversation. I know you all are also. My colleague, Emily Ramshaw, and Art Acevedo will come out right now, but I wanted to say, keep a, a thought for everybody who is affected. You know, we should all count our blessings. Whatever workaday problems we have, we don't have it as bad as the people in the areas that were affected by the hurricane. It's a helpful reminder. Tell everybody that thing, okay? See ya. Thank you.